You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld, and my guest today is the great Mike Dwyer. Hello. Hello. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thank you. Mike performs here at the Magnet with the great team, The Wrath, as well as Friday Night Show, and he also performs at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater with the Lloyd team, Southpaw. That's correct. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. Thank you for having me. I want to also, just so you guys know, there seems to be some sort of erratic plumbing work going on directly above us. So if you hear that knocking, now you have the context for it. Just let it it soothe you as you listen. It's almost comically in the way. It it is. Very much so. Very much so. I want to uh, uh, open up, talk about your wrath show this Mm -hmm. past week. You were in the first scene with uh, Rob Penty. Okay. I believe you. It's true. The... uh, uh, Penty's initiation for the scene was you were clipping your toenails on the train. And his oh, opening yeah. line was, do you have to do that? Uh, um, I don't remember your exact response to it, but your response led to you standing up, having been fed up with people misunderstanding you. This has been on my mind for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then you went into a speech defending uh, your choice to be clipping your nails. This, to me, seems like the uh, uh, quintessential Mike Dwyer move. <laughs> finding an opportunity that I think a lot of other improvisers would not have found super, super quickly and kind of cracking it open to give yourself everything that you need to play a scene. Can you talk a little bit? I just did a really piss poor explanation of the scene. Can you talk about the scene and can you also talk about the way that you approach finding those kinds of like power spots in scenes? Sure. I can talk like in particular about that scene. I know that uh, I didn't realize I was going to do that until I did. I think, I think what I remember happening in that scene was that I, um, uh, I just wanted to like accept that offer and be the kind of guy who does do that thing. Like, okay, I'm clipping my toes on the subway. Um, uh, so I started to try to almost justify it from the perspective of that character. And mm-hmm. then I sort of realized like, oh wait, maybe I've actually convinced myself. Uh, I think I actually believed because it doesn't hurt anyone. And I have, it is disgusting, but it's ultimately like harmless behavior. And it was almost a moment where I was like, actually this uh, person is starting to make a little bit of sense to me. Um, so I guess I, I do always sort of try to find, like, what's the what's the logic or rationale behind uh, uh, whatever a person is doing, um, and to not back down from that. Do you? Uh, um, I guess I don't know how to ask this question exactly. What is what's the thought process like for you when you're doing that? Is that is, is that just instantaneous for you of just wrapping your mind around somebody's point of view? Because you're. You're a lightning fast player. Oh, it, 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 it's really impressive how quickly you're able to know exactly what to do. And it always looks like the absolute perfect move to make. So, so how, how is it really that fast in your mind? Is it just instantaneously uh, adopting somebody's point of view and going for it? Um, that's a good question. I, I think uh, the, it, it's a little bit more patchwork than it might look. Like, I remember in that scene, um, literally the first thing I had to do was just uh, start clipping my toenails, because mm-hmm. that was what had... <laughs> We're going to talk about this for a while, about me fake clipping my toenails uh, on stage. Uh, so everybody can picture that. <laughs> um, all I had to do was like literally start doing that thing. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's, it's not totally a conscious thought process at this point, 
but I do know that I, I always approach scenes from the perspective of like, if there's any particular behavior that my character's doing, I do it on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like this, this is, uh, I try not to let anything be an accident. Um, and I, I do find that that pretty quickly for me at least leads to some sort of point of view that a character might have. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so the question was about like, uh, the, the speed I don't know how to answer that uh, specifically because, yeah, I, I don't... I, I'm certainly never thinking, like, uh, uh, better have an answer real fast. Right. The, the, that's not something that occurs to me. In fact, I, if I need to take my time, I do take my time. Yeah. Um, uh, um, but it is, like, I, I do have conscious goals um, that, I, that I work on a lot. And, and so whatever particular thing I might have been working on might happen to come faster at that point. What is on your mind these days? What are goals that are important to you? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, not letting scenes get more complicated than they need to be. Mm -hmm. um, really focusing up um, and letting scenes be dumb if they need to be dumb. Mm -hmm. uh, the Rats is being coached by Sebastian Canelli right now, uh, and he's definitely helped us. Uh, really focusing on the dumbness, <laughs> like the sort of beautiful stupidity uh, of what I find to be like very fun improv scenes. Um, yeah. What would be an example, if you can think of one, uh, of overcomplicating a scene for you? Like what, what would be an, an ideal move to make versus something that would be kind of unnecessary? Um, I think a, a, a sort of typical overcomplicated improv scene is a, uh, a group game uh, or group scene where every character has to have a completely different or an original point of view in the mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's something I've been, as I've begun teaching, uh, really, really been uh, focusing on, like helping um, sort of drill into the minds of like students, which is like in a group scene, we don't all need to be coming at everything from a different perspective. It's totally fine to just adopt the exact same point of view somebody else had. Um, yeah, and that's the, that, that's one example of simplifying scenes. That's a perfect example. It's interesting because you end up making things so much harder for mm -hmm. yourself by trying to be individual in that kind of situation, by, by trying to create something deliberately for you and you alone. There. Yeah, I think it comes from an understandable place of uh, trying to add your thing to mm -hmm. a scene. Um, and for, for me, I remember like that feeling once I realized, like, oh, I don't have to add anything. Everything's yeah. already there. Um, it, it felt almost like a cheat, but it also felt very liberating yeah. to, to come to that realization as a performer. That, that's been something on my mind quite a bit recently, too. I talk about it in my classes a lot. That it, it, I think that a lot of people, especially newer improvisers, when they think of yes-anding, tend to put more focus on the and part of that equation. Mm -hmm. And it, to a certain extent in earlier classes, you're kind of trained to, just so that you're not kind of a, um, a passive element in your scene yeah. you're trained to constantly be giving information but uh, I, I notice a lot of people kind of half-ass the yes part you mm -hmm. know and, or, or they assume that the yes part means act agreeable or act positive right and then give a lot of information whereas i think like much much simpler uh, is accept what has been offered and only add more if you absolutely need to. But otherwise, I, this is at least like my current working philosophy. If you don't need to add anything, don't add anything. Yeah. I strongly agree with that. Uh, I, 
I, I know whenever I'm in a scene, uh, whenever I'm in a scene with uh, where somebody gives me a lot of a lot to deal with in their initiation, I'm never frustrated by that. Yeah, I'm always like, great, let's <laughs> like easy. Yeah, now it's easy, and I look good. Yeah, uh, and this person's helped me <laughs> look good. Yeah, um, and and like speaking to your point on like. Um, how, how in earlier improv classes, like maybe in like level one, we really do want to focus on the and part of it. And that is understandable. Like it, it really does make sense that we were like, okay, now you have, everyone has permission to make a choice mm-hmm. in the scene. Uh, nobody has to defer because you do see um, a, a certain tendency uh, uh, for people to treat, maybe uh, treat what their scene partner has offered as like precious mm-hmm. or uh, be worried about violating what their scene partners offered. And that's definitely a tendency you want to, um, uh, work on sort of altering that mindset a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you do get to a point where you can look at what your scene partners offered with enthusiasm. So I think, yeah, I think there's a big difference between, like you said, sort of passively accepting, uh, what's already existing in the scene. Like the, there's a difference between saying like, yeah, 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 sure. Right. And saying like, oh yes, good. I like that. Yeah, yeah. It you know it as you're talking, it reminds me a little bit of like this is probably a really stupid metaphor, but uh, um, like when you like slap a baby when it's first born, mm-hmm. you got to give it that shock to yep. get it to like actually breathe, you know. But then like once the baby starts breathing, then it's this automatic process. You don't right. have to keep on smacking the baby. Right, There's right. a little bit of that in level one classes and level two, where where you do have to kind of force people to give more. Than, than they're likely to give. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, but you eventually get to a point where y- you got to give up making that effort. Mm-hmm. You actually got to learn how to like minimize it. My favorite note that I ever got was from Armando. Mm-hmm. And he said, the trick to improvising is to do just enough to not get fired. That was, <laughs> it's like always, there was something about that that just like felt so liberating to me. It was yeah. like, right, right, right. The answer is always less sort of generally a good attitude it's a really great (laughs) attitude it it it, but but like the the point of it is like make this easier than than it feels you don't have to feel like you got to strain all this shit out you don't have to feel like you have to provide every single detail every single moment yeah in fact the impulse to do that can lead us to sort of ignore what's already happening on stage and what uh there might be something interesting in what we've already seen but we if we don't take the time to explore it uh, we we breeze past it, and all of a sudden, that's that's where you find these meandering scenes mm-hmm. um, where we just can't agree on like what we like about this scene or like what might be interesting to to like dive into. You lose a sense of what's important too. Mm-hmm. It, you, you just it, it, internally, subjectively, you don't have a sense of what really matters to you anymore because you get so caught uh, uh, in these details. It, it and the details start choking the scene. You find that like there's no breathing room in the scene anymore. You don't feel like you're a like you're a person anymore. Yeah, I think too. Like uh, um, with yes and, there's a tendency for newer improvisers to kind of yes and every single offer that's being made. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and so every single line of dialogue goes off in this totally different direction because you're yes anding that line of dialogue. Whereas, right. like, I think it, it really there's like that moment early in the scene when you first kind of make a connection with your scene partner. That's the moment that you're agreeing to. That's the thing that you're both agreeing is kind of true for the two of you guys. Then after that, I think you can kind of like dial it down a little bit. Yeah, it's like you you want to enthusiastically agree with the first thing. You don't have to enthusiastically agree with every thing yeah. that happens in the scene because that yeah that does lead scenes to just be um, uh, it's like sort of like 
you know how they say like a goldfish only has an attention span of like five seconds. I don't know if it's true, mm-hmm. uh, but that uh, as a metaphor, I think it works because it, it, you can that particular like line of reasoning leads scenes, uh, uh, which were will just like change focus uh, sporadically throughout the scene as if it's being improvised by a goldfish. Yeah. I, you're an outstanding, you have an amazing ear for game and pattern in scenes without it seeming, uh, um, like it seems totally integrated and totally organic. And I guess a lot of it goes back to the point that you were making about, um, uh, being in a state of mind where you do everything on purpose. Mm-hmm. And so anything new or weird that comes to you that's thrown at you, you just immediately assimilate as having been done on purpose, which, yeah. which makes uh, all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what's your approach on games and scenes? Like, what are you, what are you listening for? How do you think about it when you're playing? Okay. So, uh, uh, I, I guess to me, like if we're, we're talking about the concept of game in scenes and like what we're looking for, I I'm of the opinion that uh, uh, game is probably the result of good improv, and it's not necessarily something that we need to like or that I in a scene feel like I need to actively um, like. I'm never thinking like what's the game of this scene. Mm-hmm. I might be thinking <clears throat> what's important to these characters. What's uh, uh, what's unusual about these characters? What's this character's point of view? Mm-hmm. Uh, or what's, you know, at the same time, what's unusual about this world? Or what does this, uh, what, what's, if there's a particular point of view that uh, maybe exists in the world of this scene, uh, what is that thing? But I, I don't, I'm very rarely finding myself saying like, uh, uh, like worrying about what a, like the game of the scene is. Because to, like, to me, that puts me in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't to say I've never gone through phases where I've thought in that way. Yeah. I think, it's probably true that to some extent, like uh, almost any improv skill becomes like, like part of the point of our training uh, is that these things become uh, our instincts. And that's like our, our initial instincts when we first like step foot in like level one class, uh, our initial instincts are not productive to good improv. Mm-hmm. Uh, our initial instincts are like to protect ourselves, uh, to not make choices, to uh, maybe sort of defer to uh, like a like a particular script that we have in our mind, um, I've meandered a little bit in this answer. No, uh, no, no. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, I, if the question is like, how do I think about game uh, or games in a scene? The honest answer is I try not to now, mm-hmm. um, unless I'm unless I were to like take a class or maybe in practice I might. But mm-hmm. like when I'm on stage, uh, I. I definitely try to just trust that the training has worked yeah. um, and that uh, instinct will take over and lead me down the right path. Yeah. It, um, uh, it, it, I like what you were saying about thinking about what's kind of like important to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, I, I find the same thing too. I, I think playing games and scenes isn't really that hard. It's something that for the most part, if you're feeling pretty relaxed and if you're feeling pretty confident about the scene that you're in, mm-hmm. it's like hardwired into most of our brains to have a sense to true. repeat the important stuff. It's just our, yeah, it's our sense of like, we have seen enough improv 
that we know like what's funny about improv yeah and what works and what doesn't totally and you know the feeling when it feels like you're in that sweet spot you know the feeling totally. that like it gives you that you, you got to hang back a smile while you're playing and it's like i'm probably playing in the right place in the scene now because it's making me feel yeah very happy yeah it's like uh it's like you're in a flow yeah um which is a concept that i've if you're familiar with like the, the idea of flow mm -hmm. and like I haven't read about it in a while, but I remember resonating with me uh, where it's just the idea that uh, when we find, when we're doing something that's, oh, I'm going to screw this up, <laughs> but when we're doing something that's a high difficulty level um, and we also have a lot of expertise, on, I've screwed it up already. <laughs> the point is um, there's a, a, it becomes an almost unconscious state of like the same feeling of like when you're in an improv scene, you're like, this keeps working. Right. This scene keeps getting better and I'm not, it's not because I'm worrying about it more. Yeah. Um, it's because I'm, uh, it, I'm focusing in the right way. Yeah. That to me is like one of the outstanding things about improvising that keeps me coming back to it over and over again. I'm sure that it's true of any skill that you practice. Um, but it's that feeling when that unconscious thing kind of rises to the surface when you're in that state of flow, mm -hmm. when the scene is moving and it's, and it's challenging, but you're not afraid of that challenge you're just kind of finding yourself kind of moving with it. Mm -hmm. it for me it's that feeling of of this kind of like marriage between my sort of conscious everyday thinking and then these kind of like hidden unconscious uh, um just this ability to kind of like know what to do without thinking about how i'm going about doing it yes when those two things kind of get married and 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 are both kind of up at the surface, you kind of experience yourself in a different state of mind. You experience, I mean, it, it, it's the thing of like time feels like it slows down. You have access to thoughts in a different way. Mm -hmm. You're not really thinking about yourself too much. It, 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 and there's one way, at least in my mind, of thinking about improv as you're improvising to practice accessing that skill as much as you're accessing that skill in order to improve as an improviser. I think that's true. I, I think it's almost like, um, like when we think of people as like a good conversationalist, um, uh, we don't think that a good conversationalist is like in the middle of a conversation thinking like, what's the next good conversation thing to do? Mm. Um, and it's, it's just an ingrained skill. It's not to say it's not something that can be practiced and worked on. It can be. Mm. Um, but the, uh, the, the result, uh, the resulting good conversation, uh, just comes from a place of like, I just know how to do this. Right. I've been doing this a lot. And I think most people, like, like we have, like, language skills, for example. And it's not because we're consciously thinking about, how, like, oh, sentence structure. Like, what's the noun of this sentence? What's the verb of this next sentence? It's yeah. because we've, you know, we know those things consciously. <clears throat> uh, but we uh, just have access that, or, or practice that skill enough that it just is second nature. Yeah. It, it, when you're in that state, it really is, like, it's this feeling of total responsiveness that, at, at least the way I experience it, 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 you know, these ideas aren't really coming out of me. These ideas are coming at me from other people, mm -hmm. and and my response is forthcoming, and I just don't really think about how or why I'm responding that way. The response just comes out. It's there to meet whatever this other person or whatever these other people are offering to me, and you just kind of, like, trust it. And And part of that, obviously, is, like, 
you know, going back to like nouns and verbs, you went through a period of your life where you did have to work yeah. really hard to digest that information. Absolutely. It was, it was conscious yeah. when we were, but it was just conscious when we were very, very young. Yeah. I mean, most of us don't remember it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure when like, you know, infants or babies are like first learning language skills, it, it's, it's got to, it's like, it's probably similar to the process of learning improv skills. No it's doubt. Like, uh, what's this thing? I know this thing. How do I do this? These people seem to be doing it so easily. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's practice and sort of accepting the frustration yeah. uh, that comes with learning things. I have two kind of rival uh, um, takes on the way that we learn how to play games as improvisers. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I think that just like language, you know, you do have to put that conscious thought into like nouns and verbs. Mm -hmm you also absorb a lot by just being around other people and hearing them speak. Like there's a certain amount of yeah. like you absorb grammar and, and you have to work in order to learn the vocabulary for what you already know. But a lot of it's already in there just from being around people and growing up. And I think the same thing is true of game. And I think something that weaker teachers or weaker coaches are often guilty of are uh, they create an environment where it's they make it harder for people to access what they already know. They turn it into something that's like really challenging. And I think especially having to defend your choices and having to articulate the game moves that you're anticipating mm -hmm. to make is sometimes not a great way to work because you're actually turning someone away from their instincts and away from yeah. these kind of like deeper resources. The flip side to that is... Sometimes you have improvisers who just really resist the idea of having to put effort in. Yeah. It's something I hear sometimes in class. If you really want to piss me off in my class, say this to me. I thought this was supposed to be a fun time. Yeah. That you are guaranteed to make me dislike you. Yeah, it is fun. Learning things is fun. It's getting, fun. Getting better at things is fun. It's fun. But it also means that as an improviser, it, it, some of it is going to be effort. Yeah. Just like learning those nouns and, and, and verbs, you do have to put a little bit of conscious thought into it. So I, I think that really good teaching is all about finding that right balance where you're inspiring people to want to put that effort in and not feel shitty about it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like learning anything new or, or, or learning how to make some, make conscious something that's kind of in you, but, but isn't quite formed yet, you know, is like a struggle and, and finding a way to like make that struggle pleasant and amusing to people, mm -hmm. I think is sort of the name of the game. Yeah, I think so too. I, I also think it's, it's normal and maybe desirable at times to feel a little shitty. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's the only way that you do grow. Because if you're not feeling shitty, that means you're not holding yourself to a very high standard, unless yes. you're just naturally incredibly talented. I mean, I guess there are some people who just breeze through and, you know, take classes and they come out and they're great right away. And they've, uh, there must be somebody out there who's never felt bad about their improv, but... Yeah. Uh, I've never met that person. I mean, I've read, like, people say that T.J. Jagodowski back in Chicago when he was a student was, like, just a natural-born improviser. Yeah. They say he learned everything he needed to learn on his first day of class. And, <laughs> but they also say that he was the hardest-working guy in the room. Right. He didn't coast on it. He, he kept on everything that they were teaching he he applied and you know what i mean like so uh, maybe there are people who are really talented who can coast but, yeah, but the, maybe they'd be better yes yeah maybe they, you know and eventually too like coasting isn't going to end very well for you no and and part and of it, that it can't be that fulfilling yeah. either right i mean um it's sort of like uh i've heard uh, i've heard the parenting advice of like don't tell your kids 
that they're smart. Mm -hmm. Tell them that they did well. Mm -hmm. um, because telling a kid that they're smart is just complimenting them for something that's just sort of there. Yeah. It's not something they've done. It's not an effort that they've put forth. But if a kid gets like an A on a test, uh, we want to tell them, oh, you must have worked very hard at that. Yeah. Um, because that's, uh, it feels more central to their, uh, their actions and their, like, if we think of like, like their character as defined by their actions and not these sort of innate qualities that they have, um, uh, that's a, I think just a more useful way of looking at that. And I also think it's a more useful way of looking at, uh, uh, learning skills or learning any skills. Yeah. When you, when you compliment the person and you give them permission to kind of coast or, or be charming, or, or think that it's some sort of um, like generalized characteristic that they've been blessed with that isn't the yeah. result of, of like having to apply what they know. It, to me, it, it's like it's only a matter of time before the battery runs, mm -hmm. runs down. You, you got to keep a battery charged by periodically like running the motor. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you got you got to jumpstart it every now and again. And that's where like feeling shitty about what you're doing can be really useful. It's also way. I mean, obviously, like being in a show that feels really easy and that you're just killing it f right out of the gate. That feels great. Feels great, of course. But also feels amazing when your show is like right on the brink of falling apart. Mm -hmm. And then you pull it back in. Yeah. That thing of getting really close to the edge of like, this is not going well. And then suddenly finding it again. That's, that's the highest. Yeah. Feeling. Because that's skill. Yeah. Like that's something that you can look at as an accomplishment. It's totally. like, I, you know, I have done this. Yeah. Uh, and maybe a year ago I would not have been able to do this. I, I, I do think, you know, uh, looking at the difference between skill and talent, maybe there's not much of a difference. I think that there is, um, but I, I think skill is the the trait that I find more interesting, and it's mm. what I, I I I personally would rather be complimented on like the skills that I've acquired than on like talent that might be somewhat innate yeah. and not controllable. Yeah. What? Well, I guess there's no answer to the question about talent. What would be like the highest compliment that you could get? What would be something that would make you feel like? make you feel like you're at the right place uh in a show yeah oh highest compliment uh you know it's maybe not admirable but i think like funny yeah like that's what i that's why i'm doing it yeah that's what i want to do yeah. um i don't think I, I don't think it's not admirable i don't actually. think it's not admirable either i think that that's a, a like a bullshit thing that has here's my take on this i think that years ago when dell was uh, uh like leading the charge in order to kind of change the perception of improv in a lot of people's minds there was this period where people were taking it really really seriously you mm -hmm. know what i mean like there were the sellouts out there who were right. just being funny and then there were like the artists who were like really devoting their lives to this to this mercurial uh uh, uh craft yeah and I think that, like, that era of improv uh, attracted this sort of, like, puritanical mm -hmm. zealousness to it that somehow has managed to find its way down in the way that we talk about it even now, long after it's been accepted as, like, a valid art form. And so, like, it's still kind of a dirty word to say, like, I'm in it to be funny. Right. Which I think is total bullshit, because if you're being honest. Yeah, of course we are. Right? right? If we weren't, we would be in, I don't know... Uh, scripted acting yeah right we were doing drama yeah um of course we're trying to create comedy i think improv is naturally funny improv is just a funny thing to watch even when there's no 
like jokes happening. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that the, you know, the idea of like, don't be funny of like telling, especially, uh, uh, less experienced students to stop trying to be funny is, uh, understandable. It comes from an understandable place of, uh, you know, you, you see the person whose impulse is to be funny by like selling out the reality of the scene mm-hmm. or whose impulse is to be funny by having the character make a joke. And we do have to sort of like rest that tendency and just say like, all right, just for now, don't worry about being funny. Mm-hmm. But later, your idea of what is funny about improv is going to shift. Um, and at that point, yeah, like we're trying to, we're being funny on purpose. For sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I tell people to not be funny all the time. Sure. I, never, I never say it as, as don't be funny. Yeah. And I never direct that at the person in the class who's trying really hard to be funny. Yeah. I, I, I direct it at the person in the class who's inhibited. And nervous, mm-hmm. but I don't use oh, yeah. and and uh, in like that you, sense that yeah that makes sense of like don't worry about being funny yeah yeah D- and don't even make the effort don't even right. don't even let that be a thought and and to me that's not a note about the scene in general that's actually more of a note about how to approach the opening minute of your scene mm-hmm. how to how to find yourself in something that you can comfortably believe. And how to find yourself in a moment that you can comfortably connect with your scene partner in so that you recognize when the important thing happens yes. that locks you in. After that, though, obviously, we're trying to make this comedy. Right, because the scene, the integrity of the scene like, is important. We need to believe the reality of yeah. the relationship and the, the context of what's happening um, in order for the thing to be funny. It's why jokes aren't just punchlines. Mm-hmm. They're setups and then punchlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you know if that if an improv scene is a joke, which it's not, <laughs> but if it is, then we we have to. I think we tell people don't be funny because we're like remember that we have to have a setup. Yeah. Like there has to be something that uh, uh, exists in contrast to the like quote unquote funny part of the scene. Yeah. I, well, I think that there is a, a, an element where like the scene is a joke, but it's not a joke in the same way that you tell a joke like the punchline to a scene is oftentimes the behavior that we come to expect of a character yeah. or, or or this thing that manifests out of somebody's cracked point of view about themselves or about their partner or something mm-hmm. um but first you have to find where that behavior is coming from so that people understand and believe it but ultimately like especially in like level two classes when you're teaching first beat second beats and then kind of rapid fire callbacks it really is. Your first beat is all about setup so that when you get to the rapid fire callbacks, you're basically going to the joke. You're going to the punchline. Sure. Yeah. It's just the joke isn't a concept necessarily. The joke is this is what we know about how you're going to behave. And now right. let me lob it to you so that you can just pay it off really quickly. And it's only funny because we've seen the process of getting to that point. Yeah. Um, you would never want to walk in on like third beats of a herald and just start watching that. Because it's like there's without the, there's no context. Yeah, there's no reason to find this particular thing funny. I think Harold's uh, and a lot of improv. It sort of works in a way that's sort of similar to inside jokes, mm-hmm. um, where especially like I'm thinking like you know connections at the end of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, I think it, it triggers the same part of the brain where it's like remember that thing, remember that. 
when that wasn't that funny almost yeah. uh, almost that connection is funny because we're remembering earlier funnier not funnier but earlier similarly funny things yeah i totally agree with that uh, it, it and i think that that's one of the two big reasons why you just can't explain an improv show to somebody who wasn't there yeah it, it you'd have to explain literally every moment yeah. of the show yeah and it just it, it's impossible to make sense of right. but re- like the Harold is a very sophisticated form of basically hanging out with your friends at a bar mm-hmm. and after half an hour you have a bunch of in jokes together. Yep. I it, think that's true. It's it feels funny in the same way. Yeah. 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 You you were the, you were part of the creation of this of this language mm-hmm. that everyone's speaking now and this this series of references that everybody has and now you're just playing the language, you're playing the references and everybody knows exactly what you're calling back. Yeah. Which is part of the reason why in third beats Walk-ons and callbacks and connections can be really funny that if you stop and think about them for even a second, make no goddamn right, sense. Right, right, right. Except in the context of this new language that you guys have created amongst yourselves. Yes, it's just titillating to see that thing happen again. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, it, something I notice a lot in classes, when people start to get the hang... I see this a lot with people who, who have been improvising for about two years. Mm-hmm. And they kind of get the hang of, of they can play a scene and, and they f- they're, they're finding patterns and they're able to make patterns and they're competent mm-hmm. at making mm-hmm. patterns and, you know, and their beats are good and everything. Um, I, oftentimes I'll notice a sort of shift where um, the work isn't really funny anymore. Mm-hmm. All the ideas yep. are in place, but it's not funny anymore. And one thing I've noticed is more emphasis is being put on the unusual part of the scene right. than the ordinary part of the scene. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find myself frequently giving the note to people to commit much harder to the boring stuff yeah. and almost be really casual about the really unusual stuff. Let it just kind of exist by contrast. But the more seriously you take the really mundane, recognizable part of the scene, the funnier this unusual thing becomes. It's very funny um, in scenes where, like, if you have, you know, a, a scene with a uh, sort of a normal context and, like, a, a strange behavior in that context, I'm going to describe a phenomenon and hopefully you know what I'm talking about, like, where sometimes we'll see, like, the, the, uh, the, the context happen in the scene and then this break from the context and the break from the context is very funny. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll see the context followed by the break from the context and then a return to the context, and that's where the huge laugh comes from. Totally. It's just going back to doing the, the, the part of the scene that seemed normal, the part of the scene that, like, that did require that commitment to the mundane. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you, you'll see that all the time. It's just, just the reminder that of, the, of like where this is taking place or like what, the, what the context of this thing is that uh, uh, is actually... In, in certain situations, not always, but uh, frequently, that's the part that the audience responds to. Yeah. It, it, well, having that reminder of something really mundane in the middle of, of something that can be batshit. Like the example I use a lot is like, it's just like a boring day at the office, but mm-hmm. you happen to be in a world where a bunch of velociraptors are on the loose and right. killing everybody at the office. But you continue to treat it like a boring day at the office until someone's eaten and right. you freak out and then you go back to like making copies. And yeah, shit. and it's the, it's the going back to making copies that it... it it ignites something in, totally. the, in the audience and uh, in, in the performers too. It's like, oh yes, that is funny. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. It, it, part of it is it, it makes it, it makes the ridiculous shit digestible. Yeah. It turns it from because if you go with the Velociraptor thing and now suddenly that changes 
the lives of these characters, you might be able to tell a really interesting story. Right. But your entire thing now is about this unusual element as being the the inciting incident to the story that is now opening up. Yes. uh, Yes. And, uh, uh, yeah, like if we were trying to tell a story, then we probably would stop worrying about the copies. Yeah. Uh, But we're, we're not exactly. Yeah. The, and the fact that we're not so it makes it, 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 it gives your mind just that, that little tiny push mm-hmm. to accept a completely ridiculous premise. And, and you believe just enough of it. That's the trick to it is like, mm-hmm. you got to believe just enough of it. Cause if you don't believe any of it, no matter how funny the idea is, it doesn't hit the laugh. Right. The laugh comes out of that tension between believable and unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be that right balance where you're just willing to accept enough of this ridiculous, unbelievable thing. That The fact that you're investing belief in it as an audience member is what gets you laughing. Yeah. Uh, um, but along with that, returning to that like mundane thing also sets up kind of like a musical feel to the scene as well. It's almost like coming back to a chorus in the scene mm-hmm. or coming, you know, or leaving the chorus and going to this like verse. Now you, you, you program into people the expectation that this ridiculous thing is going to be happening again. Yes. And the longer you're able to stretch out the mundane part of it, the more tension there is for how you're going to get to it again. And, and, and usually the bigger the laugh is when you get back to it. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, Shit, I just lost my train of thought completely. What a bummer. Uh, um, oh, did you... I remember the train of thought. Did you ever see Norm MacDonald's uh, moth joke on, on Conan O'Brien? I think it was on The Tonight Show. I don't think so. Hosting. No. Uh, I can't possibly do it justice. It, it, it takes him like nine minutes to tell this joke, <laughs> and the joke has the stupidest punchline to it. Uh, um, uh, but the way that he builds it is like the perfect example of like stretching out it's just these like pointlessly mundane details and just like feeling this like rising urge for him to get to, you know what it is. Anyway, check it out. Moth joke, Norm MacDonald, Connor O'Brien. All right. Uh, um, what do you do when you're not improvising? Uh, uh, let's see. What do I do when I'm not, I, uh, I work in uh, post-production. Uh, I, uh, I, I do a lot of improvising. Yeah. I do, I do a lot. I coach, I teach. Um, uh, uh, I, I live, I live. When did you get to the point where you were doing a lot of improvising? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, so I have like two, right now I have two weekly improv shows, one bi-weekly improv show. I'm not doing sketch. Oh, I do sketch also. I'm mm-hmm. not doing sketch right now. Um, cause the seasons are off. Um, um, Lewis, don't let my parents uh, hear this podcast. Uh, don't worry about it. Just, <laughs> if you're listening, Mr. and Mrs. Dwyer, turn it off right now. Uh, you, you, you went to Tish, right? Yes, yes. What did you study? Uh, film. Uh, were you improvising at that point? I was not. I started uh, very shortly after college. Exactly the same thing with me, mm-hmm. uh, film, and started right after I got out of film school. What, yeah. what led you to it? Uh, I was... So, uh, I... I had a friend of mine uh, who I was like a writing partner of mine, my best friend from high school, Neil Shaughness. And um, we would always like part of our socializing, like part of the way that we would hang out would be to like write things. Mm-hmm. And it was usually half ideas or maybe full ideas. And sometimes we would finish stuff and sometimes we would just let it go. It was just it was a uh, almost social way of communicating. Um, um, and <clears throat> we, we took ourselves very seriously uh, and 
it was uh, around the time, like shortly after graduating college, we just decided to try to write a comedy. Uh, and it was very, very bad. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, I know. I'll take a comedy class. And mm-hmm. I know I'd, I'd gone to like ASCAT in college a bunch. And I know that uh, UCB had comedy classes. I I guess I knew the difference between improv and sketch and like different types of comedy. But I, the idea that there was going to be, that it would matter didn't occur to me. So I was just like, yeah, I'll just take a class in comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was when I, I signed up for my first uh, class at UCB in 2009. Mm-hmm. When you were um, at Tisch, uh, uh, I guess like what kind of film student were you? What, what drew, what drew <laughs> like you to film school? The worst kind. Yeah. <laughs> the worst kind. Um, I had no idea like what I wanted to, like what kind of stories I wanted to tell yeah. or like what I wanted to do. I think I thought of myself as uh, very serious, yeah. Um, but I was also very lazy, uh-huh. um, and I didn't really—I I didn't understand that the value you get out of specifically film school is effort. Yeah, it's—it's—it directly correlates with how much effort you put into it. Because I was getting good grades, so I was like, I guess I'm doing well. Um, but my my the film that I had when I finished was just it was it was very lazy. It was yeah. poorly it was just poorly produced by me. Um, and I clearly wasn't enthusiastic about it. Um, uh, uh, I think I probably wanted to do comedy, but I didn't want to like admit that to myself at the time mm-hmm. because comedy was the only thing that I was ever a fan of that. I, I, I didn't have like pretense to maybe do someday. Mm-hmm. I was young. I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go to film school cause I liked movies, but I, for, I had, had the idea of going to film school in my head from when I was very, very young. Um, and I read a lot of comic books and I was always like, maybe I'll write comic books someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but watching like, I mean, you know, watching like mystery science theater 3000 and Simpsons and stuff like that, uh, was the only thing that I ever remember doing where I was like, I, I don't know. I just like doing it. Yeah. The idea of, of creating comedy wasn't an active concern. Uh, and I think, um, uh, I think the, the moment of realization that I could incorporate that into the skills that I had learned and sort of enjoy myself more uh, was a big one for me. I, uh, it sounds like there's a lot of overlap between the two of us because like, I also wanted to go to film school forever. Yeah. And I, I kind of like imagine myself as like from like the, the like 70s yeah, I like, definitely or did tour too. tradition. For, for me, it, it, if I'm being completely honest, it was there was probably a lot of it that was just like I just like the idea of being the type of person who goes to film school. Sure. Um, and I I didn't when it came time to like write stuff, I would I'd just be like mm, I don't know. Yeah. When it came time to figure out what kind of project I wanted to do, I'd be like half enthusiastic about a handful of different ideas. Me too. But ultimately, I'd just be like mm, I don't know. Yeah. Me too. And, and, and just like you, I, I think I completely missed the point on what I was supposed to learn in film school because I got so hung up on what I was trying to say, which at that point in my life was nothing because right. I, I had no life experience whatsoever, that I got super lazy on the technical side mm-hmm. of, of putting a lot of effort into learning how to do shit. Yeah. An interesting thing too, like, because like I, I, when I signed up for improv classes, it wasn't even for comedy. It was, yes. I, I figured like, I want to learn more about acting. Mm. I'm not good. Nobody taught me how to like really work with actors well, except I had to place them in front of a camera. So I want to oh, learn acting. And, and, uh, I'd been going to UCB and seeing shows and, mm-hmm. and you know, um, this is going to sound really naive, but it didn't even occur to me that I was like in the world of comedy 
I was already working as a house manager at the Magnet for like a year. <laughs> and Armando had like made a comment at a meeting of like, you know, uh, we're all here, uh, you know, because we want to, uh, you know, create comedy and, you know, have our careers. And that was like the first realization that I had. And this was already like, I, I, I was maybe like three years yeah. into improvising. It took me a very long time to to feel like this was a thing I do Yeah. also. I, I went through, you know, when I first started taking classes, I, I, w- I was not the type of person who was like, Oh, I'm in it all the way right now. Yeah, I I dipped my toe in very slowly, and I I took my second class, uh, just because like everybody else said like, oh, are you taking the second class? I was like, oh yeah, I guess sure, why not? Yeah. My Sundays are still free. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, um, me too. I was following my friends. Not <clears throat> yeah. that it wasn't really fun, but yeah, I was very, like, all my fun. friends are doing it, so I'll do it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost it, it, I was. I think that part of the reason I, I kept with it was like, I don't know, whatever I thought I was going to get out of this, I didn't quite get out of it yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I wasn't sure what I thought I was going to get. I think I just thought it would make me funnier. Yes. Like a funnier person. Yeah. It, you know, it's so interesting because like before I wanted to, to be a film director, um, I thought like, oh, maybe animation or like mm-hmm. maybe comics is, is something yeah. I, you know, I used to really like to draw. And, uh, like I used to really like to draw. Me I was, too. I was, uh, <laughs> for like a brief period when I was probably like 12 years old, I was actually very good. And I look back at some of the, not, I mean, very good for a 12 year old sure. kid. Yeah. And I look back at that and I'm like, I have no idea how I did that. I could not do anything remotely close to that now. Uh, same thing with yeah. me. I, I, and 12 was like the age where it hit too. I, I, I did a lot of cartoons mm-hmm. and I did a lot of comics and I was really good at portraits of people. Mm-hmm. I, I could never draw the human hand, but I was really good at portraits. And I used to really love going to art classes and, and learning stuff. And it's the same thing. I, I stopped practicing, and yeah. I look back at it, and it's like, I can't draw anything now. I don't not, know yeah, not only could I not draw it, but it, 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 it blew me away that I was ever capable of that. Yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't actually that great, but it was just, it was uh, almost like, like wow, like that, was, that was the person I was then, and that yeah. is not who I am now. It's interesting. It, it, you know, it, it gets me thinking a little bit too, because like I started drawing because it was an easy way to make fun of people in, in class and school mm-hmm. and do cartoons of them. And sure. then I could get people laughing and it was great. And then, um, I kept at it because I, I was pretty good and mm-hmm. I was kind of like, oh, this is neat. I'm pretty good at it. Right. And then people started, uh, um, kind of, uh, 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 you know, like complimenting me on it. Yeah. And it becomes an identity. At it that becomes point. an identity. Yeah. And then I hated it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and then film school. And I was like obsessed with being a film director for yeah. my whole life. And, and then that didn't work out. Comedy was something interestingly enough that by the time I realized I was doing comedy and was like, well on the path where it was like becoming my whole life, I'd already been doing it for three years. Yeah. And I, I didn't have an image of who I was going to be when I was going to get there. I can Yeah. I, I've had a very, uh, very similar path to yeah. that, I think. It, 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 so it's sort of interesting that by the time you have that like wake up call, mm-hmm. you can't even define who you're going to be cause you're already there. Right. It, it, right. You know, I, 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 I have nothing else to say about that other than it's interesting the way that that self-image can be like a barrier sometimes too, because you can end up, it, 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 you you can end up like over identifying with like how you should be and, mm-hmm. and, and take for granted maybe the experiences that you're really having. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. I remember uh, a moment a few, it was a couple of years ago when a, f- a friend of mine asked me like, would you consider yourself a comedian? And my, my instinctual answer was like, no, of course not. Yeah. And then she said, well, why not? And I thought about it and I was like, oh, actually, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah. <laughs> I do it so much. Uh, um, I mean, I, you know, 
there's no as far as like time spent it's like yeah that is an accurate yeah uh, uh assessment i just didn't think i wasn't thinking in those terms yeah i i had like a begrudging like i gave into it uh-huh. it was like the realization that by that point i was already i was working as a house manager and i was on a team and and i was teaching classes <laughs> right. and it was like one of those things where i realized of like oh i'm doing this like six days a week. Right. Yeah. And usually mm-hmm. on the seventh day I'm coaching. Right. And it's like, uh, I guess, I guess this is what I do. <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it, it, I'm probably painting that in the wrong picture cause it wasn't like a negative thing, but it was just this realization of like, Jesus, I guess it crept up on. Right. Me. It's like none of us thinks of ourselves as a, this may be a bad example, but we don't think of ourselves as a commuter. Right. Even though we commute right. every single day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what, when you began to really take it seriously and, and shifted from, you started to feel like you were getting out of it, what you wanted to get out of it. Do you remember like what you were looking at that, that kind of like lit it up for you? Yeah, like, honestly it was, it was that I started to feel competitive, uh-huh. uh, um, which I think, you know, maybe has a bad reputation and it definitely can get in your way. But for me, that was kind of what I needed, uh, to push myself farther. I think it's good when you're competing with yourself. Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. I, I, <clears throat> I remember I was, I was taking classes at UCB, and uh, I took my first 401 there, and I didn't get into the advanced program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was like a moment where I was like, all right, I, I'm, I'm either going to keep doing this or I'm going to quit. Like, I'm either going to prove them wrong or uh, prove them right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll prove them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and then I started taking... Uh, more classes. I started taking classes here. I took a class with uh, Becky Drysdale. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get as much improv practice in as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I found that like different perspectives uh, were very enlightening. Mm-hmm. And I I remember <clears throat> I remember a moment in a Becky Drysdale class where it was the first time I ever felt like oh I I just did really good. Mm-hmm. Like I just did a scene and I did really well and I wasn't uh, worrying about it. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very good feeling. Do you remember what it was that gave you that feeling? Do you remember like what kind of scene you were practicing? Uh, it was, uh, oh, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember that it was listening. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I got a big laugh by listening very carefully to what my scene partner had said. I, I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but I remember that it was something along those lines. Um, and that was also, uh, as far as like skills and technique, that was a, a sort of, uh, eye-opening for me that like when we were speaking earlier about like oh there's enough like what's going on on stage right now is, is already enough yeah i don't need to make up funny stuff right i can uh just acknowledge what's happening and that will be funny uh so that was it was sort of a, a epiphany in both those senses i i was always very afraid of becky drysdale mm-hmm. um she's really really good mm-hmm. um but she's also like she's just kind of scary she'll cut you down to size you know what i mean like she she's really sharp and sure. and doesn't take your bullshit so i was surprised at how much i i enjoyed her class yeah and like two things that stood out for me about that class that idea of like it's already enough mm-hmm. i remember she used that metaphor of like yep. our, our job is to make the best meal possible with the fewest ingredients yeah you don't want to buy too many ingredients. You just like need three ingredients. And and her idea of like, I remember her diagram of game in scene. Do mm-hmm. you remember this? Uh, was it the hamburger? No, but that's oh, a, that oh. was a great, that yeah. was her, her, her metaphor for group games. That was right, fabulous. Right. Um, can, you, can you explain to the people listening who didn't uh, uh, get to study with her the hamburger metaphor? It's a great <laughs> metaphor. I hope so. Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, it was, <laughs> I can't remember the details of it. Yeah. 
it was like <laughs> I, I think even she, like she got lost in the explanation of it at one point it's such a clear like image it's, it, it, i remember it specifically being about group games and it's like yeah. one person lays down a bun right and the next person puts the patty on the bun yes and the next person puts the cheese and then you put the and then it's done when you put the second bun on she's like when you watch bad group games what you see is and this is exactly what you were talking about before with mm-hmm. people having individual ideas yes somebody puts a bun somebody else puts a bun right That's somebody right. else puts That's a bun somebody puts that. a patty somebody mm-hmm. puts another bun and and you just end up with these incomplete cheeseburgers yeah. It's like, oh, of course, that's such a great idea. She had a, she had a, 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 a game and heightening diagram mm-hmm. where she just drew like a circle, a triangle, a square, and a cross. Mm-hmm. And then it's like a reset. And then a bigger circle, a bigger square, a bigger triangle, a cross, then a reset, and then an even bigger one. Mm-hmm. And the idea was like each of those characters it, it represents the way that we're relating to each other. So if I'm like, if I start the scene with like, uh, uh, you know, just forget about it, Rob. And you're like, come on, talk to me, Steven. Mm-hmm. And then my response is like, I'm done. And you're like, fine. <laughs> and then we hit like a, re- a reset. And the reset might be you being like, I'm sorry. Right. Then I would go back to just forget about <laughs> it, Rob. And we're basically repeating the same sequence of behaviors all over again, yes. but finding a way to heighten that whole sequence. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it's something when you describe it and when you look at it on paper, it seems super mathematical. Mm-hmm. But when you're playing it in a scene and, and you and your partner are both agreed to like looking for those sequences, uh, uh, it was like a revelation yeah. to me. Yeah. It, and it really made it so super fun. And it also had this great thing of like, you have to be aware of how long you're able to make this chain of reactions and be able to to remember all of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, the more you add into it, then uh, uh, it, it does become overly complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so you're teaching level three classes here yes. at Magnet now. What mm-hmm. kind of stuff are you focused on in class? Where, where's your head at these days? Uh, well, it's, it's a, a level three is the Herald. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think, fo- I think focusing on keeping scenes very simple is important to me. Focusing on, um, uh, committing to the mundane, like you said, is something that, uh, I, care a lot about Mm -hmm. um sort of respecting each other's ideas and um uh getting enthusiastic about what your scene partner's doing Mm -hmm. is something that's i I think something that i've realized is important to me it's never something i would have been able to put into terms before um but there's nothing that bugs me more than uh seeing a scene start with a an initiation um and the, the person responding to the initiation is just clearly not super interested in doing that scene and mm-hmm. wants to like steer it in a different direction. Uh, that's, you know, bad scenes are bad scenes, but that's the kind of bad scene that I'm like, I have no patience for. Yeah. It, yeah. I, it, it puts a real bug up my ass when I see people just like being negative or dismissive at the top of a scene. Mm-hmm. Because to me, if you're dismissive of somebody else's initiation, it, the subtext to that is, um, uh, do a different initiation, please. Yeah. And it's just bullshit. Right. And so you failed to impress me. <laughs> yes, yeah. totally. How do you, how do you encourage people to, uh, um, be enthusiastic about each other's ideas without, without planting a kind of like fake enthusiasm in them? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 It's, uh, so, and being enthusiastic about somebody else's idea doesn't to me mean like starting every scene off with a big smile. Yeah. Cause, uh, in some ways like sometimes when people start a scene we don't like they they might not even understand like we'll say words without hearing ourselves sometimes uh and we'll 
will add something to the scene without realizing it specifically. And there's a, I remember a note that I got once, uh, which has always stuck with me. It's like, always have a sense of mischief. And that's not, uh, uh, it's not denial and it's not, um, uh, dismissing the, uh, dismissing what's in front of you. It, it's like seeing what's happening in a scene and, uh, sort of having a sense of like, Ooh, well I could do something with that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a, set, a, a sort of feeling I try to instill. That's interesting. You know, that makes me think of what you were saying before about, you know, uh, um, the behavior that you have going into a level one class is not necessarily conducive to good improv. Mm-hmm. You, you tend to be polite. You tend to be safe. You tend to, to put on good social skills. Right, like, yeah. uh, uh, let me be a nice, easygoing, right. friendly person. It's behavior that's uh, that's gotten us this far in life. That's, yeah, uh, that's why it's so ingrained in us. Yeah, but when you're improvising and when you're doing comedy, there's always that kind of subtext. Uh, 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 you're always watching people who kind of are a little more inclined to get into trouble with stuff. Yeah, I that's, think that's true. That's part of where that like glitter in your eye comes in, or mm-hmm. that kind of like smile that you're suppressing, as you see opportunities to to make trouble there's a sense in like level one uh uh like when trouble yeah like when trouble comes up either for the characters or for the scenes there's a sense of panic yeah there's a sense of like an impulse to be like oh i hope this doesn't happen anymore it's it's uncomfortable that's why you see a lot of scenes where people are solving the problems in Mm -hmm. front of them and a note that i always like to give is like if there's a problem in a scene the last thing we want to do is solve it we want to make it worse Mm -hmm. uh if the if there's something that's affecting the characters uh in an emotional way or like making their life difficult. Oh, as, as the, you know, the writer side of the scene, like we want to make their lives more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's where that, that, that that's a, how I would illustrate that sense of mischief that yeah. I try to bring to it. Yeah. I, I always think of like Larry David is a really great example yeah. of, of like someone who like has to be right so badly that he'll like, disrupt somebody's funeral right for like you know a grieving loved one that they really cared for to like prove some dumbass point about you know the right way to whatever the fuck right. deal would be but what's funny about scenes like that is not the person who comes in and like ushers larry out yeah. it's like the people who react to it yes and who begin like agreeing with him too there yeah. are certain people who will begin to be persuaded by him mm-hmm. and that becomes funny as you're watching this kind of like uncivilized is too pretentious a word to use, but it's pretty much what I mean. Yeah. You, 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 you're watching like an eruption of like uncivilized behavior and it, it, it's delightful. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I think the, like the rules of polite society are exactly what we're trying to overcome when we teach improv. Mm-hmm. The idea of, uh, uh, of getting along and sort of ignoring the reactions that we have to things. Mm-hmm. Because uh, like polite society would, you know, they would usher Larry out. They would pretend not to see him <laughs> if he was disrupting a funeral. Um, but that's not exactly what we want to see in improv. I think we want to see people get upset by things, yeah, uh, or people get convinced by things, yeah. We want to see the day where uh, people sort of give in to their somewhat baser impulses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it. Yeah, it. it, it like. I hate the word naughtiness, but it is mm-hmm. like, it's naughtiness. I think it's a, I mean, I think it, it can be a useful mindset yeah. to have going into scenes because it, it allows you to be like deliberately comedic, mm-hmm. um, without, uh, undercutting or, or denying anything that's happening already. Yeah. When, when you're playing with the wrath, mm-hmm. 
the whole team is really adept at that kind of stuff. Yeah. Every single person on that team is adept at kind of like spotting the right moment to freak out about something Mm -hmm. or the right moment to get really emotional or, you know, Uh, um, how do you guys like practice? I'm always like really entertained to watch your guys shows because you're so, so sharp and so aware of like how to exploit each other's offers for like exactly that sort of behavior. Yeah. I think as far as like, like, uh, we communicate very well. And I think that that really just comes from a place of like, uh, it's, it's like number one, it's just chemistry. So a lot of that's just chance. Um, and number two, it's just like, we've just been performing. Like the team's been around for so long. (laughs) So we know each other so well. Mm -hmm. Um, we can pick up on, uh, offers much more subtly than I, you know, than I can do or than anybody can do in teams that just haven't been around as long. It's Mm -hmm. like you share a vocabulary. Like we were talking earlier about, um, uh, you know, joking around in a bar with your friends and having inside jokes with your friends. And there's almost a, a way that we communicate with people that we've known for a long time. That's just, it's different. It's a little less guarded. It's a little more like we know we can almost finish each other's sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing um, in a wrath show. That's, that's, I think what uh, contributes to what I think the perception of like speed and like fast choices is really just us kind of knowing where the other person's going already. Yeah. yeah. How so you do a lot of coaching. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. When you're working with groups who are aspiring to that, mm-hmm. but just haven't been together for, for four years. Yeah. Uh, uh, what kind of exercises these days are you running to help people, um, uh, hear each other a little better and help help people find the kind of mischief in the scene a little bit better. Like I, I, I my brother told me about uh, an exercise that you ran that he really enjoyed about yeah. like waffling on your point of view and, and oh yeah, what kind of stuff are, is kind of exciting to you these days? Yeah, I think uh, what is exciting to me? What's exciting to me these days? Um, or what do you think is like the right thing for for less experienced groups to be focusing on together to to kind of up their chances at success at arriving at that place. You know, it, it's it, it. I think a lot of it depends on the group. A lot of it depends on what the group is trying to work on. I do. I have things that I'm excited about, but I do tr- like tend to like try to look at each group. I try to look at each group as its own thing. Although, like, I think invariably every coach is sort of coaching to their own thoughts. I, I do think that coaches tend to, like, when we're giving notes, at least we tend to just give the notes that we that we think resonate with ourselves a little bit yeah um there's a okay here's a there's a fun exercise in um in context that i like a lot and it's 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 sort of plays with the idea of being mischievous like adding to a scene um not denying what's going on i like to do the um the exercise where I'll have one per it's almost a line up in like two lines and I run it like drills uh, where I'll have one person. Um, I'll give a one word suggestion and one person will uh, begin speaking almost lofty and philosophically f- about that suggestion. So uh, if uh, the suggestion is Valentine's day, this person might say like, you know, I think Valentine's day is a bullshit holiday created by the Hallmark company. Um, and the other person's job is to create a context for that character's speech that um, provides some contrast and maybe some uh, uh, element of um, 
a, a sort of changing what we thought we knew about this character. Mm-hmm. So the response to that might be, uh, like, honey, do you love me or don't you love mm-hmm. me? Um, something along those lines. I think, uh, I think if we're coming back to the idea that like everything we need in the scene is sort of already there, I still think that that's true. I still think that even in an exercise like that, the, the idea of like sort of altering the context just a bit or not even altering, just like creating the context. Sure. Um, uh, uh, when we say like everything's already there, what I mean is like, what, where would you, where would you think would be a interesting place to see that line happen to see this person be speaking? All right, well then let's make it that. Well, that's interesting because you know, you're what you're really doing is you're responding not to the idea, but you're responding to the person who's espousing that idea. Yeah, exactly. So, you're not fucking with them at all. It, it really you're using exactly what's in front of you. You're just kind of labeling it. Yes, you're labeling it and you're also like sort of telling your scene partner what your sense of humor is in yeah. this like in this context, yeah. right? You're, you're saying like, here's, you know, I think it would be funny if that character uh, was responding to a, a, a loved one who had just said that they loved them. Yeah. Right. That, that's such a great example. Uh, that to me is like one of my favorite comic moves when you get somebody who kind of like has done wrong mm-hmm. and they're just like super self-defensive about it and, and self-important about it. Yeah. Like I love the idea of somebody forgetting to give a gift to their boyfriend or girlfriend and their response when it's pointed out is, you know, Valentine's Day is such a <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the self-righteousness and, and um, I, I forget, I think, I think like, Jeff Bridges might have said it in some interview somewhere where, like, watching self-important people be deflated, watching self-important yeah. people get themselves into trouble is, like, oh, it's one the, of the real best. pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it brings up, as an audience, you know, it exercises a little bit of your sense of, you know, you can relate to it a little bit. You, you actually relate to the person who's getting the piss taken out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that that's true. I, I think yeah. that mean comedy and bad comedy is oftentimes uh, um, you're identifying with the person who's not the butt of the joke. That's what makes it mean comedy. Yes, it's where we're amused by the cleverness of the cruelty maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like in that context, the person that I would be identifying with would not be the person who didn't get a Valentine's. It would be the person who defends themselves ideologically. (laughs) Right, right. And what would make me laugh about that is like this like momentary glimpse of like, oh, I do that shit all the time. <laughs> I'm so good at rationalizing my bullshit yeah. and making it seem like I'm the hero here, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like defunking that self-importance. I think that's part of like where the mischief comes in yeah, a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, rather than deferring to it. And that's like, uh, uh, that's a, that's a, deferring to authority. Uh, I think is one of those social skills that we have ingrained in us. Like as we go into level one, mm-hmm. uh, that we have to maybe start to, not 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 eviscerate, but at least start to question and look for cracks um, uh, in the foundation of that. Uh, if we want to be like playful in our scenes, yeah, totally. Well, it, it it that sense of playfulness and that sense of authority to me. I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to articulate this idea very well, but like they always go hand in hand. There's always mm-hmm. like some element of like taking the piss out of authority, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that politically necessarily you can do that but i just mean it of like i guess it comes back to self-importance and i guess it comes back to like the way that you're 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 kind of kicking someone who's a little bit above you yeah doing it in a political sense is almost still being like uh uh, 
like having some some degree of reverence for it. It's still like placing importance on it, right? Uh, and I think doing it in a comedic context is it's like we're not trying to debunk, we're not trying to like uh, uh, like disassemble this person's ideology. We're just trying to say this person doesn't matter. Yes, yeah, that's uh, that's a really really good point. Because there's a, a total defensiveness in trying to disassemble somebody else's ideology. Right. It's still it's respectful, not maybe not in a in, in a different sense of the word respect. It's, yeah. It's taking the idea seriously. Yes. Yeah. Whereas when you reframe them as like it's just a joke, mm-hmm. your, your I'm not responding to your ideology. I'm responding to you. Right. I'm not taking the piss out of the way you think. I'm taking the piss out of out of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very different thing. Well, you know what I love about it is, uh, um, I honestly believe. Um, if you like take like a series of photos of like a bunch of people who went to high school together and then 20 years later, you look at the people who have spent the last 15 years improvising and the mm-hmm. ones who didn't, the improvisers look younger generally. <laughs> I really believe That's probably that. probably true. Yeah. And I think part of it is like we're actively keeping that like adolescent part of our brains alive and well fed. That yeah. part that's just like constantly poking at yeah, like the impulse, bullshit. the impulse to be like, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But harnessing it with like grown up intelligence yeah. with other like like minded, intelligent people. There's something about it that keeps you just kind of like fresh. It's something really mm-hmm. sad when you watch like your peers grow up and suddenly they look like adults. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that like weird dust has sound, settled on their skin. They, they sound, sound like, like adults. It. Yeah. All of a sudden they're spouting ideologies right. and shit. And you know what I mean? Like there's something, I don't know. It, 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 they have like opinions based on like the practicalities of like the yeah. tax bracket and shit. That, right, to right, me, right. Like I know obviously it's like you have to, you know, but then there's another part of me that is always like, well, no resisting that right it's like aren't you hearing yourself yeah exactly exactly it's one of those beautiful things about improvising and Mm -hmm. just doing comedy in general you know it's one of my favorite parts of it yeah it's that sense of like of like being able to realize how ridiculous you sound yeah like you do lose that when you grow up you you do stop like 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 hearing what's being said and saying i mean i that's i'm ridiculous yeah i'm a ridiculous person yeah (laughs) where can people see you play mike uh you can see me on Wednesday nights, uh, Mega Out with the Wrath on uh, Friday nights at the Friday Night Show. Both of those are at the Magnet, and uh, on Lloyd Nights uh, with my Lloyd Team Southpaw. Fantastic, Mike Dwyer. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for talking. Thank man. you very much, and thank you guys for listening. A couple of other big thank yous to our producer Evan Ford Barden, to our engineer Grant Michael Goldberg, to our executive producer Ed Herpsman, and to all the good folks here at the Magnet Theater and the Magnet Theater Training Center. We offer amazing classes here in improvisation, sketch comedy, musical improv, storytelling, character creation, all kinds of wonderful stuff. You can find out all about our classes, including our free weekly intro to improv classes. That's right. You heard me correctly. Free weekly intro to improv classes and all our wonderful shows. Find out more about that stuff at magnettheater.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Mike Dwyer. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye, bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.